Hey friends, welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. My name's Matt. We're so glad you're tracking with us. Jesus Collective is a new relational network of churches and leaders with a vision to unite, amplify, and equip this Jesus-centered movement that God is raising up all over the place. During this pilot season, we're experimenting with different ways to build relationships with people in this movement, to put language to what Jesus-centered means, and to have meaningful and honest equipping conversations about the issues and opportunities facing our churches in this increasingly post-Christian context we find ourselves in. So, this podcast is one of those tools. You might find a number of different types of conversation formats shared here, and we hope you find it meaningful and engaging. You can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find information about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff, at our microsite at JesusCollective.com, or you can find us on social media. And hey, we love hearing feedback and ideas and just meeting new Jesus-y people, so you can always reach out by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Second. Woo! Uh, of nine online interactive podcasts that we have planned for the Jesus Collective pilot that we're in. So um, like a podcast, these gatherings are times for us to kind of interview and hear from some thought leaders within our movement. Uh, my name is John Hand. I have the privilege of being a part of the, the Jesus Collective team. So Jesus Collective is how we talk about Jesus Collective. We are not the Jesus Collective. We are a Jesus Collective. There are many in the world. Um, But I get to be a part of Jesus Collective in helping to build the leadership development and formation aspects of uh, what we're doing here. Uh, And we we would love to um, meet with as many people across the Jesus Collective uh, that we can in the next year as we do these kind of online engagements every six months. We're calling these uh, interactive podcasts because they are like a, a podcast that we, we do interview a thought leader and we are trying to make these practical and implementable. We walk away with some real tools, but it's not like a podcast in that we get to interact with each other and we get to, uh, we'll spend some time at the end in breakout rooms. We would please uh, hang around to the end so that uh, as we are forming the A Jesus Collective, we want to collect together and introduce ourselves to each other and just get to see who's out there and where are people coming from. Um, and we're going to hear a story from our friend Angela, and she's going to um, share with us a bit about where she's coming from and what she's hoping for at Jesus Collective. Just a housekeeping heads up. In September, on the 18th, we will have another one of these with our friend Danielle Strickland. Uh, she's going to be our kind of thought leader that we'll be interacting with. We're very excited about that. Uh, Danielle is a very Jesus-y person and uh, has, I think, a lot to say for uh, the formation of what we're trying to do here. Um, and then um, I'd like to transition over to Matt to kind of give us some more context for where are we in Jesus Collective these days. And this is Matt Miles. He's taking point on overall giving leadership to helping Jesus Collective get off the ground. Matt. Hey, guys. Great to see everybody. Uh, I recognize some names as well, but I know there's lots of new people joining us too. So welcome, everybody. We're just genuinely so glad that you're here. We know because we feel it and we hear from folks like yourselves that it can be a lonely place when you feel like you're swimming, swimming upstream um, in the world, but in the church too. And days like today, and actually the last few months for us as Jesus Collective, are 
vivid reminders and encouragement that none of us are actually alone. And if we all lean in, we can actually, we see it starting to happen, create something together that's going to encourage and equip one another in this Jesus-centered way. And that's what Jesus Collective is all about doing. We want to unite this movement by helping to bring it together more relationally. We want to amplify it, which just means we want to give it more voice. We want to make it more identifiable and give it more critical mass so we can bear our best witness together to the world that needs Jesus so desperately. And we want to practically equip it. That's why we're here today. We want to equip it with some real how-to and some resources and training that allow us to be the best leaders that we can be and allow our churches to be the best versions of themselves they can be too. So I'm not going to talk for very long. We want to get to the meat and potatoes here. You can read uh, an update that we posted on our micro site just recently in the last week or so to get a more fulsome shot of how we're doing and where we're headed. There's a lot of encouraging stuff happening. Just a few highlights for you to keep your eyes out for. You have obviously found our online interactive podcast, and John's going to continue to share more about the vision for these and this particular type of engagement. Keep an eye out for more of these. So Daniel Strickland is the next guest that we're just so pumped to have on board for September 18th. We'll talk more about that at the end of the call today, but mark that one in your calendar. We're also going to be launching, really excited about this, in the next several months, a beta test version of an online digital platform that is intended to help us build a sense of community together, where we can share resources and inspire conversations and equipping and allow people to be finding each other in this movement and connecting together. We're going to be looking for some beta testers for that later this year. So just stay tuned. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in or people at your church would be interested in, fellow leaders of yours, we would love to have lots of people in churches participating and giving us feedback on that so we can make it as best as we can before we launch it more widely. Um, John and his team are also working on some other leadership formation stuff that's really exciting, like the first iteration of some online learning collectives that would span a series of weeks and really dive in a few important topics um, in relation to Keep your eyes peeled, keep your ears open for ways to continue engaging with us. Uh, we'll share a little bit more at the end of the call, but for now, I'll pass it back to you, John, and we can dive in. Great. I want to share two aspects before we talk to our friend Angela. Two aspects of kind of the vision for the, the leadership development or formation of the Jesus Collective offerings that we want to pilot in the next year. Uh, so we, we want Jesus Collective, as Matt said, to be a place where we are finding each other's voice, as often pastors and leaders feel isolated. But it's not just about finding each other and connecting. It's also about equipping each other for mission. So we, we want this to be a place where we, we don't just talk about high-level ideas. We're always bringing it down to practice and practices that help us implement ministry in the areas that we're responsible for. So we don't want to just ask the why questions, which are important, but we want to ask the how questions. How do we do this? And today's an example of that as well. The second commitment we have is that we want to resource each other to engage and reach secular people. Uh, we want to be aware of what, what questions are secular people asking, what doubts, fears, longings do they have that we believe that the message of Jesus and the mission of the church speak directly to. Uh, because we live, for most of us, in post-Christian North America. So I'll call it post-Constantinian, call it post-Christendom, whatever you want to call it. But we think there's some amazing opportunities for spirit-led adventures and God-sized challenges that come to us in this time of history, and we get to be on the front lines of this. 
and, and this is happening on our watch. And we have a front row seat to what God's doing in the world. And so those are two aspects that will kind of infuse into all of the, um, all of the offerings and experiments that we're trying in this Jesus Collective Leadership Formation pilot. So I want to uh, transition over to our friend Angela. Hi, Angela. Good morning. Well, it's morning for me. Hello. <laughs> Why is it morning for you? Where are you? Uh, I'm on the West Coast. I'm in California, Northern California. Okay. And so what, what, what are you doing in Northern California? Like what town do you live in? And then okay. what, what ministry are you part of there? And what are you doing there? Okay. Uh, I am in Petaluma, California, which I don't know why we have that name. No one can explain that. It just is what it is. Uh, we're a little bit north of San Francisco. So we are in the heart of, um, I would say post-Christian is fair. But in our particular area, uh, organized religion is viewed with disdain. It is only known for its judgment and it's considered bigotry. It's, mm. it's uh, Our county is the second most unchurched in the United States, apparently. And the one south of us is the most unchurched. So uh, we are eager to be in these dialogues with the Jesus Collective. <laughs> like, yeah. Eager. That's uh, I'm a pastor. Okay. And what kind of pastor? Well, like a lot of pastors in small churches, I'm all kinds of pastor. <laughs> so, um, Wearing lots of I, I was our executive pastor and then in November transitioned into being our interim lead. And okay. we don't know what that means going forward. So okay. uh, our church is 20 years old. I've been on staff, I think 19 of those and have held, again, like other small churches, you just hold a lot of hats. So uh, that's my current one. Okay. So how did you find... Jesus Collective. Uh, I got pointed to the meeting house when you guys were doing, well, I don't know who the you guys are, uh, right. to the meeting house during yeah. the Her Story um, series. Yeah. And it rocked my world. And so I just stayed. I have been cyber stalking the meeting house since then. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> that was how literally I just kept listening to the podcast. And then I heard this and then I had to go look that up. And then now I have just been tracking. That's great. And so then you have been tracking. We've had a couple of conversations. As you think about uh, Jesus Collective and the things that you've heard about it, what, what are some of the hopes that you have that this uh, collective could be or could do? Well, you've spoken to several, and I've mentioned one is, uh, so our leadership three to five years ago started asking some tough questions, and it was around our use of the Bible, and that really scared us because it sounded heretical, and we had no language. It just seemed scary, but we could sense God in it. So when I heard uh, various hopes um, stated by the Jesus Collective about what they wanted to do, was like, oh my word, this is a thing. Like, there are other people out there uh, asking the same questions or putting language around it. So I am super excited about the networking piece. Like, super excited to not feel alone, to start developing some language, to have a safe spot to ask my own questions. Um, I love the meeting house's tone of theological humility, and so I'm expecting that the Jesus Collective will model that and maybe even train that a little bit into us so we can get comfortable with having theological conversations without having to do the thing. Uh, and part of the networking excitement for me is the idea of reframing what we think like-minded looks like. 
Okay. For too long, we have defined like-minded as other independent churches, which is our case. Or we we have a picture of what like-minded looks like. And to me, the Jesus Collective is like busting that wide open, uh, making our horizon way bigger when it comes to the idea of who to link arms with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also think you said, you know, we're watching this thing happen real time in the church. It, to me, it looks like a rebirth, but it also looks necessary. When I have conversations with people that are in their 20s and younger, the face of the church that we've been representing for so long is, is becoming offensive to at least my local community. And uh, I feel like what the Jesus Collective is doing is offering language and a, and a uh, perspective on Christianity that might be the difference between my young friends embracing this faith that I love so dearly and rejecting it. And I, that seems really worthy to me. So I'm mm-hmm. hopeful for the language piece, like really hopeful for my own education and confidence in speaking and seeing things this way. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your heart uh, with us on these things. Thank you for, those are kind of spoken uh, hopes and prayers that we are resonating with uh, for whatever it is that God's doing here. And that's what's exciting is we don't actually know what God's doing. We believe that God is doing something. We're feeling the wind of the spirit and we are just trying to be responsive to that as, as the spirit leads. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I want to transition over and begin to um, chat with Greg. I first want to um, in- introduce Dagmar. Dagmar is co-hosting with us. So Dagmar, could you introduce yourself? Tell us where you're at and um, yeah, what, what your hope is for this time today with Greg. I'm Dagmar Morgan Sinclair and I am lead pastor at a meeting house in Hamilton and my site is in the eastern side of Hamilton. So Hamilton Mountain is what we call ourselves. And uh, I'm really excited to just hear Greg's input on giving us some tools to better communicate uh, with people who come from different perspectives about the gospel. And uh, I'm just super excited to hear him unpack uh, some challenging things for us. That's great. Thank you. So, uh, introductions to Greg. If you've never heard of Greg and you just found yourself here because of a friend, go Google him. There you go. And Greg is the, the, in brief, pastor of Woodland Hills Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's in- Oh, no, 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 St. Paul. I'm sorry. That's probably, that's probably- Sibling hot buns there. Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably stepping in doo-doo there. Okay, sorry. I take that back. In St. Paul. He's an energetic thought leader. He's a theological provocateur. Uh, God has used Greg to help lead many people to a fresh light on a Jesus-looking God, the scriptures, and the mission of the church, and the nature of the kingdom. Um, and so today we've asked Greg to pick a really creepy Old Testament passage and walk us through how to preach or teach or explain these kinds of passages in the Old Testament. And I've asked Greg if he would help us um, do this for two kinds of people. And this goes back to our vision. Greg, help us uh, explain this passage to somebody who is spiritually curious, but very post-Christian. And, and they might like Jesus, but when it comes to the Bible, the Bible is actually a barrier for them to Jesus. Because they see things like this in the Old Testament. And they think, why would you read such an immoral book that describes such a monstrous, immoral God? 
uh, as we see often in these creepy Old Testament passages. So that's one person. The other person I'd like you to help us address is a good-hearted, long-term Christian who loves the Bible, and they read a passage of genocide in the Old Testament or a violent God, and they say, well, that's God. He, he's God. He can do what he wants. He's, he's good. So regardless of whether or not he seems good, he's good. Just the Bible says it. I believe it. There you go. So help us take a creepy Old Testament passage and teach, preach, and explain it to these kinds of people. All right. Uh, hey, I just let me say it's really good to be here. I, I love this tribe. I love pouring in this tribe. I love what you guys are doing. Jesus Collective, uh, great stuff. The timing is perfect. People are so happy for this. And uh, I think this is the next step of this uh, movement that God's raising up around the world. Uh, start having talks to one another, get networked and whatnot. Also, I, on my screen, I know on other people's screens too, I keep on getting Laura Dion up there. Now, I, I'm sure Laura Dion is a wonderful person, but uh, I, like right now, all you can see is Laura Dion. And uh, I can't see uh, John or anybody. And, we, and even when John's talking, Laura Dion pops up a bunch. So if, if uh, anyone could do anything about that, I would help. I would appreciate that. Uh, it's an ADD sort Greg, of Greg, there's a button at the top of your screen called Speaker View or. Um it's just a, a, it's a button that gives you different views. If you click that, it should give you a different view. Uh, okay. Uh, you mean like shrinking screen or something? Or? You, uh, it says gallery view. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so you're, this is all like, like Hollywood squares now. They're all like. I know, I know. It's a Brady Bunch. Yep. I mean, really? Like I'm on Romper Room. I see Brian and Laura and Lori <laughs> and Lane and Robin and I see. Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay, so um, you know, the thing is, uh, I, I, before you can talk about how to translate this into uh, language that a non-believer or a traditional believer could understand, uh, you first have to get it internalized. So let me spend a little bit of time just kind of telling you what this way of looking at the Bible is about, and then we can try to transition it to practical application. Um, the core of this thing, I mean, when you really – get honest with what's in the Bible. And most of us are trained not to. We're, one author said that we're modern Christians are like functional Marcionites. We just sort of ignore all the nasty stuff, pretend like it's not there. But it is the elephant in the room. And, and when you put together, uh, bring together, as I did when I was starting this project about 12 to 13 years ago, uh, that came out to be Crucifixion of the Warrior God. But when you put all those passages together, God commanding genocide, wipe out every man, woman, child, infant, even the animals, uh, but he says in Deuteronomy 21, but spare the trees because they've done nothing wrong, which you think might apply to the animals and the babies as well. But uh, God wants them to spare the trees, but slaughter the babies. And they're, they're really quite horrendous. Um, and, and, and so I, I, about 12, 13 years ago, began to I really wrestle with this. The clearer I got about how central Jesus is to everything, and that's the presupposition of this whole thing, that I believe all scripture is inspired because Jesus did, and I, and I call him Lord, so I can't just correct him on that. Uh, but he says all scripture is inspired to point to him and more particularly to, to the cross. And so I can begin to ask the question, not only like, how are these portraits of God in the Bible, but how are they supposed to point to the cross? Uh, how, how do they bear witness to the self-sacrificial love of God revealed on Calvary? And I, for a long time, just toiled with that. Um, it, was, it was like I, I was between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, I have to accept everything in the Old Testament as divinely inspired because Jesus did. On the other hand, Jesus, his revelation of God, which I'm told to put my total trust in, is of a God who is completely nonviolent. Uh, we're commanded to be nonviolent because God is. And so, you know, Jesus says, 
uh, don't, uh, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I'm telling you, instead of that, and that was commanded three times in the Old Testament, he said, put that aside. Instead, I want you to uh, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So that's his criteria for what it, for what, what it means to be a child of the Father in heaven. You love your enemies, you don't retaliate. Uh, and then he says, because the Father, he, he, he causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. So God loves indiscriminately, and so also we are to love indiscriminately. And, and we are to love our enemies and, and practice nonviolence because that's, that reflects God's character and shows that we are children of God. So if all the Bible is inspired, how are these portraits there that don't look anything like Jesus? Um, and so I, I uh, toyed with this for the longest time, and a light began to open up to me. I, I, whether it's revelation or madness, uh, everyone else will have to decide. But I began to see or think I saw something. And, and, and it, began, it happened when I asked the question, and it seems like the most obvious question in the world, but I've never heard anyone ask it. But the question is, how does this crucified guy 2,000 years ago, this Jewish guy crucified as a revolutionary, how does that become the definitive revelation of God for me? Um, okay, so then put up that, that little drawing. Here you can see my masterful artwork. John took a picture of this and, and put it up there. So consider this wonderful portrait. So look, if you look at you know the unbeliever on the left, he's uh, he's sad because all unbelievers are sad, right? And, and <laughs> but he looks at the cross. Uh, all he sees is a crucified criminal, and this is one of the many thousands and thousands of people that Rome, you know, wrestled up and and crucified. Uh, the believer, though, when he looks at the cross or she looks at the cross, um, you don't just look at the surface; you see the crucified criminal. But what that's not what reveals God to you. What reveals God to you is that you, by faith see more than a crucified criminal. Uh, you see something else going on behind, behind the scenes. By faith, you see that God, represented by the triangle, is the one who stepped into this crucified criminal. On the surface, this is terribly ugly. It's hideous. It's, it's, it's grotesque. Um, but when you look through that grotesqueness, you see the beauty of a God who would willingly take this onto himself and, 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 and suffer it for us. So the believer looks at the cross, and sees nothing but that. But the, the believer looks through the cross, and with the eyes of faith, you see something magnificently, magnificently beautiful, which is why the cross is, for the believer, simultaneously hideously ugly and unsurpassably beautiful. It's hideously ugly on the surface, but unsurpassably beautiful in terms of, of, of what you see by faith and what it all reveals about God. And it's the stooping of the, God stoops his unsurpassable distance, uh, I, the all-holy God becomes our sin, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and the perfectly united God becomes our God-forsakenness, um, uh, Galatians 3.13, becomes our curse. And, and so the fact that God would go to this infinite extreme, couldn't go any further than he went, that the unsurpassable distance and the unsurpassable sacrifice reveals the unsurpassable love that God is. And that's why John sums up the revelation of, of, of God and Jesus by saying, God is love, 1 John 4.8, but then he defines love by pointing us to the cross. Uh, 1 John 3.16, here's how we know what love is. Uh, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So you do the math. God is cross-like love. God is self-sacrificial love. God is other-oriented, humble, uh, uh, enemy-embracing love. Um, and, and so if the cross reveals what God really is like, and it does, it is the definitive revelation of God. Uh, it's not one revelation among others, it's the revelation to which all other things point, as Jesus says. Then, 
reveals what God's always been like, including what God was like when he inspired scripture, when he breathed scripture, and he breathed scripture for the ultimate purpose of pointing us to the crucified Christ. So if that's how God reveals himself to us on the cross, and this is the center of the center, shouldn't we read the Bible knowing that that's kind of how God sometimes reveals himself? In other words, we should read the Bible knowing that, that uh, we might come upon revelations or, or depictions of God that are ugly on the surface. Uh, that doesn't reveal what God's like. In fact, the surface reveals what sin is like, just like on the cross. We see the ugliness of our sin on the cross. So also, we should read the Bible knowing that we'll come upon portraits of God that maybe will tell us more about the people that God's dealing with, the sin that God is bearing, more than they tell us about God. And in those cases, we have to exercise the same faith we use to see the cross as the definitive revelation of God. We look through the surface, knowing what God's really like. We look through that ugly surface, and what reveals God to us is the fact that we can, by faith, see God stooping into this, stepping into this, doing what he does on the cross. God's always been doing cross-like stuff because the cross reveals what God's always been like. So on the cross, God bears our sin and takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin. And the cross reveals what God has always been like. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we should read the Bible knowing that Yahweh has always been willing to stoop as far as necessary to accommodate and to bear the sin of his people, but then to, uh, and, and thereby take on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin. And I, I submit to you that all sub-like, all sub-Christ-like portraits of God in the Bible are in that category. Uh, now, just to fill it out a little bit more, I'm presupposing here, and I, and I make the case for this in Crucifixion of the Warrior God and in Cross Vision, but that God is a non-coercive God. Um, the, Paul says the cross reveals the power of God, and the, the cross is anything but coercive power. This is God laying out his heart to woo, to woo humanity back to himself. That's the kind of power that God relies on. It's not a coercive power. And so if God's not going to coerce people into having true beliefs about him, now think about this. If God's not going to just lobotomize people to have only true thoughts, if God's going to actually honor their personhood and, 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 and not coercively override it, then that means that God, God can influentially reveal God's self as much as possible. But since God's not going to coerce anybody, there comes a point where God has to accept them as they are, including with all their jaded pictures of them. And in that case, if God's going to stay in, in solidarity with these people, God's going to have to let them think that he really is like the way that they're portraying him. He bears their sin and, and, and takes on that appearance throughout the biblical revelation. I think all the while hoping that when God finally reveals what he's really like, we'll trust that, and trusting that God really is as beautiful as he is on the cross, we'll be able to look back on this and see something that the people at the time couldn't see. Namely, we see God bearing people's sin and taking on the appearance that reflects that sin. So I don't think that God ever commanded uh, genocide, uh, go out and wipe out everybody, exterminate. I don't think God ever uh, unilaterally flooded the earth or incinerated Sodom and Gomorrah or swallowed up the, the rebels at Korah's rebellion or all the other things that are said of him. That's what the people of time thought. But we can't just dismiss it for that reason because it's all sacred scripture. It all has to have revelatory value. But what that reveals to us, these pictures of God, I think are testaments that, that God's always been willing to take on human ugliness. God's never been above getting his, his, his feet dirty, his hands dirty. He dives right into our hell, right into our... It's no different than Jesus. He, hung, he hangs out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, has dinner with them. So the religious people say, oh, birds of a feather flock together. Look, at he must just be a terrible sinner. He does look like that because he's hanging out with these people. But if you trust the character of Jesus, what you see is the love. 
It, 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 it's his love that leads him to be in solidarity with sinners. He does that with prostitutes and tax collectors. He does it on the cross, and he's been doing it throughout all of church history. Okay, so can, so, I, can yeah. I ask, Greg, can I ask then, you so I, I hear what you're saying, but you said, uh, so let's say in the Old Testament, there's these ugly portrayals of God, like the cross is an ugly portrayal of God. The problem that I, I think people wrestle with, though, is on the cross, that's what we did to Jesus. The ugly portrayals of God in the Old Testament are what God's doing to other people. So that's what the people believe. Yes. But in fact, but if you're reading it through the lens of the cross, just like you don't take it, the surface doesn't have the final word for the cross. That ugly surface, that's not the final word. Uh, that everyone can see. What only faith can see is what else is going on, and that's God stooping to enter into that out of, and revealing his love in the process. So when we read the Bible, we've got to know, we've got to, we've got to think about it in the terms of these two, in terms of these two dimensions. The, the surface, and sometimes the Spirit of God breaks through, and you see a Christ-like portrait of God, and you know the Spirit's always working. But other times, what you see are the hardness of people's hearts, and their culturally conditioned, fallen views of God at the time, which they share in common with everybody else in the ancient Near East. Uh, that's one of the ways you know it's, it, it reflects the cultural conditioning. Is that you know, when, when in the Old Testament, when they have these portraits of God that are very Christ-like. You know, Yahweh is the husband and Israel as the bride and all that. There's nothing in the cultures that, that, that correspond to that. It's, it's unprecedented in ancient Near East. But when they portray God as this uh, thunderbolt-throwing deity with flames coming out of his mouth, riding on the clouds, you know, and slaughtering people, those, those, are, those look exactly like all the other ancient Near Eastern deities. In fact, some of the songs that are sung to the warrior god in the Old Testament are lifted directly out of pagan texts, and they just switch off the pagan God and put in Yahweh. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And, and since God's not going to coercively correct these people, um, God, God has no choice but to put up with them. And that means I'm going to let you think that about me, and I'll, I'll relate to you on that basis, all the while moving us more, moving people more and more uh, in the direction of truth until he can finally reveal what he's really like in uh, the person of Jesus Christ. So what, um, yes. Yes. So what becomes, what becomes, what do you think, Dagmar? Like what, what becomes the, okay, so I'll give you an example. What becomes the filter to know then that this scripture is people's misrepresentation of God versus right. when God is actually speaking in an sure. inspective way that I'm supposed to trust. Sure. So um, the, the, the ultimate criteria, I mean, there's a number of criteria. Like right. uh, one is, does it cohere with what's found in the culture of the time? If it does, that's one indication that you're dealing with culturally relative material. If it transcends the culture, that's one indication that the Spirit of God is breaking through. But the, the ultimate question is, is what, what determines the direction of transcendence? And the ultimate answer to that would be Jesus Christ crucified. Whatever is consistent with the character of God as revealed in Christ, that I can consider, I, I'll see that as the Spirit of God breaking through hard-hearted people and revealing truth. To the degree that any portrait of God, and it's not an all-or-nothing thing, There's, you know, even if these are complex, it's going to be mixed up. But to the degree that any portrait... Uh, it contradicts what is revealed about God in the person of, of uh, the crucified Christ. To that degree, I have to assume that God is bearing the sin of God's people. And so the portrait tells me what God's people were like, but not what God is like. But what tells me what God is like is when I use that faith, knowing what God's really like, the same faith I, I exercise to see the cross as the definitive revelation of God, I see through the ugly surface, and what, what reveals God to me is the fact that God was not above, staying in solidarity with his people, even though they thought this about him, even though, and, 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 and the pain of what that must have produced in God is God has to uh, put up with his children slaughtering a bunch of people. Um, 
because they think that God told them to go into the promised land. Uh, so so the, 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 let me unpack this a little bit. So knowing that what God's really like, when I come upon this portrait of God saying, slaughter them all, everything that breathes, leave, let me, leave nothing alive except for the trees, I, I can't imagine Jesus doing that under any circumstance that goes directly against that. If an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was contrary to Jesus' revelation of God, and it was, even though it violated three Old Testament texts, well, how much more this portrait of God saying, you know, slaughter them all, engaging in genocide? And Paul tells us that in Galatians 1.8, that if, if, uh, if anyone, and even an angel from heaven, preaches any gospel that's contrary to the gospel that, that he and the apostles are preaching, let them be anathema. Well, could any gospel be more contrary to the gospel that Paul preached than this gospel that God sometimes wants to incinerate entire populations of people. Uh, and if I obey Paul's instruction, I should not listen to anybody, even Moses, if they tell me a contrary gospel. Uh, and so it's interesting that the only one ever to have supposedly heard uh, Yahweh give this command was Moses. Uh, mm -hmm. Whenever the people carry it out, they always say, as Moses commanded. Even when Joshua carries it out, he says, as Moses commanded. So they're all trusting Moses. And it's easy to trust Moses in the ancient Near East because this is what everyone in the ancient Near East would assume God would say. You know, God says, inherit the land. Well, they just assume that that means, oh, we're supposed to uh, slaughter the inhabitants to inherit the land. Um, and it, it's, so it would, make, it would make sense. But as we look back on this, I think we should see something totally different. And then there's this motif, and I unpacked this over 20 pages in, uh, in, in Chris Fix the Lawyer God, where this motif where Scripture itself tells us that the way that we see and experience God will reflect as much about us as it does on God. Uh, you have two, two passages, for example, that says, to the, to, the, to the pure, God appears pure. But to the twisted, God appears twisted or shrewd. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the way we encounter God is like a Rorschach test. Um, it will say as much about us as it says about them. And so when you put that together with this long motif in the Old Testament about how stubborn God's people were, there was no knowledge of God in the land, they had forsaken God, even the leaders didn't know God. In that light, we should be surprised that any truth got through. Um, because they were, they were, they were stick -neck, stick neck people. So what, I, I, what verse was that, Greg, that you just referenced? What verse, what? Was, what verse was that that you just referenced? Uh, the the stiff-necked people stuff? To the twisted. Oh, oh, um, it, one's in Psalms and one's in First Samuel. I, I don't have it off the top of my head. It's in Crucifixion of the Word of God and in Cross Vision. Okay. Um, but and that motif gets, you know, heard all the time. It's a ministry, Jesus' ministry all the time. You see, like, he tells them, I'm going to suffer and die, right from the get-go. Three years, he tells them, I'm going to suffer and die. When it actually happens, they're shocked. <laughs> because their preconception of what, what Jesus was supposed to be was so strong that all of his teachings that didn't agree with that went in one ear and out the other. And when Peter finally did catch on to what he was saying, he, he says, we won't allow that to happen. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Hmm. Uh, so also, I think God is saying, hey, I want to give you this land. In fact, there's two passages in the Old Testament, one Leviticus 18, the other one, Exodus 22, I think, right around there, uh, where, where the Lord says, he, he gives these nonviolent plans to enter into Canaan. He says, I, I'll send the hornet or the pestilence ahead of you, and, and I'll drive them off the land, but not right away. I'll, I'll do it slowly so that you'll multiply, and that, so when you take over the land, it won't be overrun with wild bush and wild animals. So it's going to be a slow, nonviolent process. That sounds a little more Jesus-like. So is that, is that really God speaking? That So God's really speaking in that passage, but the other ones... In, in the course of billion, and the earth swallows yeah. and 14,000 people are smote that day. That seems like a much more Jesus-like way of relocating people. <laughs> unpleasant. They'll, they'll naturally migrate off land. Another passage, he says, I'll dry up the land. They've defiled it, so I'll dry it up. 
And so they'll naturally migrate off. But again, he says, I'll do it slow. So what happened to those plans? How come all of a sudden, a couple years later, solder them all? I, I submit to you that since th those two plans are consistent with, with the character of God in Christ, um, yeah, the Spirit's breaking through there. But on the whole, it fell on deaf ears. Uh, like, like Jesus telling the disciples uh, that i got to suffer. It's just no one in the ancient Near East would think that thought. They all knew they had to help God be violent. They all attribute all their violence to God. In fact, in the ancient Near East, violence, attributing violence to a God was the highest form of praise. Yeah. Uh, they, they knew that their soldiers did all the slaughtering, but they'd always give their God the credit. The, the Old, Old Testament authors do the same thing. And you can see in their own text that it's actually Nebuchadnezzar who does the slaughtering, but they attribute it all to Yahweh. And that's just an interesting thing. We've got so to be able to do it. Yeah. So I, I appreciate this. This is good. I, we're here with a pastor, right? This is Pastor Dagmar, who has a congregation. Yeah. To stand before and explain these right, things. Right, right, right. I'm, I'm curious what you're hearing, Dagmar. Um, well, I mean, this is great. I mean, you do such a good job, Greg, of unpacking this. And I think for me, though, the big question that I always get, and that actually I had because I grew up a non-believer and, oh, and mm -hmm. was and was – saved which is what i say i know that's not always the way that we say it at the meeting house but i was saved in in my adult years and so for me some of the big things about these these uh hard passages was even if i understand it and sort of like it's just it's so old like how does that apply to me today how do i go home after hearing about this and walk some of this out because making that connection for somebody who's spiritually curious is mm -hmm. it's everything and if it's not modernized for me i'm like you i'm gone i'm lost sure i think it's modernization um comes in at the point of christ i mean it, 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 it the job is so christ is relevant to the person's life uh how these old testament words are you know is, is inconsequential but what, what I, I think it's at the, at the point of, of of showing how Believing in Jesus does, does, does not mean you have to believe all of that stuff happened exactly as it said. Right, right. In fact, if you are believing in Jesus and read this all through the lens of the cross, you can, all, you can see how it all points to Jesus. And Jesus has always been willing to accept people where they're at, to start to come down to their level, enter into solidarity with them, take on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin, uh, and walk with them towards truth. And God's still willing to do that today, and that's good news for all of us. And it shows a consistent God. I think, especially right now, and I suspect this is going to be from here on in, as, as religious terrorism continues to terrorize everybody, um, there is an increasing justified paranoia uh, about religion and violence. And, and people are just uh, very sensitive to this. And there's all these studies now that show that when people look to a religious text that has authority, and that text has a violent depiction of God, it inclines people more towards violence and desensitizes them towards violence. Right. So I, I suspect that only the nonviolent God will be viable in the near future. <laughs> uh, and, and so then how do you preserve the inspiration of the Bible in, in, in a culture where religious violence is taboo, as I hope it will be? And the answer is, I think, by reading everything in, in, in light of the cross. But you only will see, here's the thing. Here's the choice that people have to make. When I come to Moses telling me that Yahweh said, slaughter everything that breathes, I can either trust Moses or I can trust Jesus. If I trust Jesus, I can see how Jesus is behind the text. But if I'm going to trust Moses, well, now I, I, I won't, I won't think, feel the need to look behind the text. If God, God's just capable of genocide. That's it. 
Um, then I know that it creates all sorts of other problems. Like, is this the same God that is revealed in Jesus? And, and how does this point to the cross? But this is a way of, of, of having a completely uh, Christ-centered, cross-centered, non-violent, but fully inspired uh, biblical text. So why would we, why would we, would we preach these Old Testament passages? What's the, what's the benefit or the use of this? If scripture is useful, as it says, then how is this useful? Sure. Is it simply, well, uh, they got it wrong. We know Jesus isn't like that. So uh, let's just talk about, let's just skip back to Jesus. You see what it does, uh, and I'm doing this now. I mean, I, 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 this is still a new thing for me too. So I'm kind of my teeth as we're going through here. Uh, but, but my congregations have a lot to warm up to here. So I'm at, at an advantage. But as I'm going through this, like I just talked about the flood a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I taught a story on that. And, and there's still all these lessons to draw out of it, of course, the normal lessons. The one lesson you wouldn't draw out is, man, does God kill a lot of people when God gets pissed off. <laughs> uh, that, there, I, would, would just, I do a cruciform hermeneutic and show how God has um, always, was, was, has always been willing to meet people where they're at and assume their, 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 their depiction of him. And then give an account of what actually happened there, and I can do that here if you want. Um, and, and what it does, though, it, it makes the Jesus story part of the whole Bible story. God's always been doing what he does on the cross. And, and, and it, so it, it highlights the humility of God, the patience of God, the long-suffering nature of God, and the self-sacrificial nature of God throughout the whole biblical uh, revelation. The thing that really surprised me, and this is, what got, this is why Crucifixion of the Warrior God grew to be 1,500 pages, is that I found that when you read these texts, from the perspective of the cross, knowing what God's really like, and therefore willing to have faith to see what God's doing behind the text, stepping into this ugly picture of God and whatever, I, I find that as I do that, I find confirmations in the text itself that leave me that, that confirm that this is the right way to read the text. I, I mentioned this a little bit ago, how um, uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah especially, they attribute all the violence done by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to Yahweh. Yahweh smashes families together. His ruthless rage rips them apart, all that. But they apply the same verb and say the same thing to Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, historical fact, it was Nebuchadnezzar, not God, who did all the killing. It's just that, being ancient Near Eastern people, they, they don't want to shortchange God by crediting Nebuchadnezzar with violence. They want to attribute this directly to God. And, and as you read the text, you find that, in fact, they themselves know that God didn't lift a finger. It was all done by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, another great example of this is, is Korah's rebellion. Um, number, 16, number 16, this is where you know, the people were saying Moses is a bad leader, Korah was rebelling. And so then God, the, the earth opens up and swallows some people. and then some. Yeah, he incinerated uh, 250 people. At the yeah. end, this plague starts spreading, but yes. oops, it got out of hand. Moses uh, is begging God to back down, but like ended up 14,000 people got killed. Oops. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Delightful. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. <laughs> Please don't say. Please don't say. But see, here's what's interesting. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, he talks about the grumblers. And there's a few episodes of grumblers. This is the most famous one in number 16, so most scholars think he's referring to this, but he could refer to all the grumblers. But he says, don't be like the grumblers in the Old Testament who were killed by a destroying angel. Now, where is there a destroying angel in number 16? In fact, where's the destroying angel in, in, in any of the episodes where grumblers were punished? There is none. But Paul assumes there was one. And we know Paul's building on a tradition here because two, three other people before him had done the same move and was all part of a movement that was beginning aware, becoming aware, more sensitive to God's uh, character 
and not wanting God to be mixed up with, with, with morally questionable stuff. And so they, they start to read the biblical text differently and assume that there's other agents involved in this, even when the text doesn't suggest it. So Paul says this. That there's what, do you, what do you mean other agents? Like, like a destroying angel. What is that? A, destroy, a, a, a fallen principality and power. Hmm. Some kind of agent that loves to destroy, kill, steal, and destroy. Hmm, who comes to mind? Satan. Um, so when you, then we read Leviticus. If you dig down into it, and I found that I have to go, I couldn't find any evangelical authors who did this. I found numerous liberal authors who do this because they don't have a horse in the race trying to pretty things up. But they, they argue that in the, orig, the original audience, when it says the earth opened up its mouth, they wouldn't have thought that God opened up its mouth. They believed the earth opened up its mouth. Uh, throughout the ancient Near East, they viewed the earth either as a cosmic beast, itself was a cosmic beast, mm. or more frequently, there was a cosmic beast named Mot, who was the god of the underworld, who lived underneath the surface of the earth. But it says, uh, and we have these hymns that say that its jaws go up to the surface, and sometimes it devours people alive. Mm -hmm. uh, probably how they explained earthquakes. And so when it says the earth opened up its mouth, there is a different, there's a malevolent agent swallowing people. When it, when it talks about fire coming down, some of these scholars argue that that is the fire of the netherworld that comes out of the mouth of Moth that then continues the task of burning up people. Um, others argue that the word for fire, as well as the word for pestilence, is actually the proper name of a Canaanite deity, Rebesh. And, and it was a malevolent deity. And some argue that it shouldn't be translated as plagues, it should be he unleashed Rebesh, and Rebesh slaughtered them. And so the, 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 the view of judgment that we arrive at here and that we always arrive at is exactly what we find at the cross. On the cross, the only thing God the Father did to bring about this judgment on sin, and the cross was a judgment on sin, the only thing he did was withdraw his protection. It says God turned him over uh, to these wicked humans to do what they wanted to do. Um, and that's God all ever does. When, when it comes to judging, uh, God only turns people over, and, and, and let's, if that's the way you want to go, let it go. Romans 1, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. God gave them over to their, and, and he does it with a grieving heart, because Jesus reveals that God's heart is breaking when, when he talks about God's judgment on Jerusalem. Um, so behind every judgment picture of God, we should see a wailing God, but a God who, like, like, like if you've ever had to deal with some relative with serious alcohol or drug problems, sometimes you've got to let them fall. Yeah. You, you stay in there to protect them from the consequences of their sin as long as you can. But there's a point where you realize you're enabling them. You're actually harming them. And so you have no choice but to let them fall and hope that they'll learn the hard way, but they couldn't learn the easy way. I think that's what God does in, 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 in all judgments. So, so where do I, if I want to go deeper on the historicity part, because I think I'm hearing Christians and non-Christians say, but you guys are still, we, I hear the Christians say, the Bible, the Bible, you can't let the Bible go. And I hear non-Christians say, why are you guys so fascinated with this Bible? Why should, I, why should I give any credibility to it? So where do you deal in your works? Because we don't have time. We're gonna, we want to yeah, yeah. give people a chance to ask questions. Sure. Where do you deal with the historicity aspect when you have this now kind of big disparity between that was confused and twisted, but it, when it comes to Jesus or smells like Jesus or looks like Jesus, well, we can trust that. So yeah. where do you deal with that? Well, if I, I'm understanding your question correctly, um, I, I guess I would say this, that whether I'm dealing with a believer or unbeliever, I'll stick particularly with the unbeliever right here. Um, I never go to the Bible. Uh, I would encourage folks not to go to the Bible. The, the Bible is the problem. 
uh, this uh, this way of evangelism where you know here's what it says in this verse God said I believe it that it, that worked back a hundred years ago in America when America still had some sort of a common general blase denominator of Christian thinking and that's gone no one puts the Bible no one gives a rip so I always start with Jesus and I give the reasons why I believe in Jesus and 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 you know I can give historical reasons existential no that means the center of the center of the center um, now I believe in the Bible because Jesus did. And, and, and so as an act of obedience, I will believe it. I'll believe it all points to him, even if I don't understand how. And as I keep on digging, I begin to understand how. I, I, begin, I begin to see how it all points to him. But the point of the Bible is not the Bible, it's Jesus. And so I, I think it's a grave mistake to ever present the Bible apart from Jesus, or even before Jesus or alongside of Jesus. Uh, give the Bible as the result of Jesus. <laughs> First believe yeah. in Jesus. And, like the, you know, the early disciples, they didn't believe in Jesus because they found him in the Old Testament. They found him in the Old Testament because they first believed in him. And they believed in him because of his miracles, his claims, and especially because of his resurrection from the dead. I think that should be the same apologetic uh, approach that, that, that we have on, on the stuff. Okay. It was fascinating to see how you know, the, the, the grotesque pictures of God in the Old Testament used to be my number one obstacle to believing the Bible is the Word of God. I did it out of obedience, but it was hard. Now when I, that I can see how these portraits point to, to, to the cross, to me, it becomes like one of the most positive uh, selling points of the Bible. It, it, it's like, look at this, the beauty of this, uh, when you read it through the lens of the cross, as we always should. Yeah. So we, we have to stop you there. And uh, Dagmar's going to transition us to some Q&A. Mm, yeah. Wonderful. We have, we have quite a few people who have been popping up in the comments, uh, throwing things out there. But one person I would love for you to... I think you need to unmute and video, or can does Zulima do that for them? Yeah, uh, I think I think Zulima does it, and then maybe they have to do it too. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Danny Ferguson asked a question about uh, Hello, Danny. their twisted view. So I would love Danny if you would would ask that question again, and uh, and then and let Greg answer it. And then if you do have a question, there's a button under Manage Participants where you can go find your name, and then. You can click uh, raise a hand, and then Dagmar and I can see that hand raised. It's like a revival here, and we can pick you and then uh, continue the conversation. Yeah, we can come to you. All right. Hey, Greg. Um, so the question I asked was, if, if, say, people in their twisted view of God are writing these stories about God in Scripture in a twisted way, are we able to trust any of their portrayals of God? Great, great, great question. Um, yeah, I, I would say insofar as, as what they say, the cross is always the criteria. Um, and and so insofar as anything they say is consistent with the character of God revealed on the cross, that's the spirit of God breaking through. I refer to those as direct revelations. Um, but insofar as the, 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 the portrait of God does not conform to the character of Christ, uh, to that degree, it's an indirect revelation, meaning I have to use faith to see what's going on behind the scenes, just as I do on the cross. So there are other criteria, like conformity with the, the, the culture and things like that, but uh, I think the, the, the big one's the cross. See, it, it, and that, this is why this is so important, is because the number, what's happening with some progressive evangelicals, and this is my concern, uh, well, one of my concerns, but, but what's happening is that they get, you know, like Peter N says, that God allows the, uh, God's people to tell the story from their perspective. I think that's right. Um, but then he, uh, where I disagree with him and Eric Siebert and a bunch of others is that 
they think that explains the problem. Or like Eric Siebert says, well, you know, the, the, the stories of the conquest narrative are not very much rooted in history. Uh, he quotes a lot of scholars who, who argue that there's evidence that it didn't quite go down like that. And so he says, well, so it didn't happen, so don't worry about it. Well, see, that is now backing off of the plenary inspiration of the Bible, the full inspiration of the Bible. And, and, and that, that opens up a door. If, if you're free just to reject Scripture, either for moral reasons or because of historical reasons or for whatever reasons, you're now the one in authority over the whole Bible. And, and now you can just kind of pick and choose according to your own preferences. This gives us an objective criteria. The cross is the objective criteria. Here's what God's really like, and now look at everything through that lens. Um, and, and, and so it, it anchors, it takes it outside of our own just subjective whims. And so the fact that the, the, the conquest story isn't very well act, rooted in actual history, to me, is irrelevant. Uh, Jesus endorses the text of the Old Testament. He doesn't endorse, it gets its authority because, from Jesus, not because it corresponds to someone's version of actual history. And so, so I think we have to take the text seriously, regardless of its historicity or regardless of whether we like it or not. Every passage has to be wrestled with. That's my, that's my understanding of, of inspiration. And I really am worried when the church starts to back off of that because history shows that groups that cut the tether with biblical authority tend to float out in la-la land. And if there's anything I don't want to happen to the, this movement that's going on right now is that it eventually floats out in la-la land. I, already parts of it are. Um, and they, you know, the emergent church is a great example of this. They, they knew what they were against, but they never were sure what they were for. But they knew it wasn't biblical authority, and so they just became kind of faddish. Um, we have to stay anchored to Scripture and anchored to Christ. Great. Thanks, Greg. We're going to move on to another question because we've got a few people. Thanks, Danny. That was a great question. Okay, I'll try to keep it shorter. Sorry. It's <laughs> great, Greg. We're going to jump over to Keith, <laughs> and then after Keith, we're going to talk to Cole. Hi, Keith. Hey, how's it going? Very well. Good, good. Um, hey, I was – I'm trying to – all right, I think I'm here. All right, uh, kind of a two-part question. Um, when we find other examples of uh, things that don't line up with the revelation of Christ, maybe even in the New Testament, uh, how do we handle that? An example will be like Ananias and Sapphira. Um, how do we deal with that coming out of the New Testament? Very, very good. Um, excellent, Keith. The, what I'd say is that... that, that um, there's no reason that I have for to think that everyone in the New Testament got the full revelation of what God was like, like that. I mean, given, given how steep they were, and, and they were so steeped in their own views that they couldn't recognize the Messiah, uh, even though he's telling them I'm going to suffer for three years, you know, they were blind of that. So uh, I, I, I think we have to allow that there could be accommodation even in the New Testament. Now, I will always try to account for those kind of difficulties exegetically if I can. In other words, in terms of straightforward exegesis. And a lot of the alleged problems of the New Testament, especially the alleged violence, can be accounted for just by careful exegesis. Like, for example, the book of Revelation, I don't think is, I think it's an anti-violent book. Um, but it's read as being violent, and I just think it's read wrong. And I agree with those scholars who, who argue that if you read it really carefully, it's, it's critiquing all those violent portraits of God. So that's an exegetical account of the violence. But if I had to, I would say, well, here, God has to accommodate, because um, not everyone's going to get it at, at, at equal speed. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, and I, I, I can't go into all this now, but I'll just say this. Um, I, I think that can be accounted for exegetically. Uh, 
you know, it's interesting. And I, 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 one of the principles I use in Crucifix of the Warrior God that I derive from the cross is what I call it the principle of autonomous power. And that is when God gave Jesus all authority, um, it's clear he could have used it however he wanted to. And it would have worked. It just wouldn't have been God in line with God's will. And you find that also in, in throughout the Old Testament where Moses, that rod of his, works even when he uses it in a sinful way. He's been given that power. And that guy, when he gives him that power, he says, make sure that you use this to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. In other words, don't go using it for other purposes, which assumes that Moses could have used it for other purposes, and it would have worked. Or uh, uh, Elijah, when he calls on fire from heaven, to incinerate those people. If you read that account, it's really clear that that was not God's will. He incinerated 100 people there. The Lord has to show up and says, hey, dude, go with these people. I want you to go see this king. And what are you doing being so afraid of kings? God just gave this big, long lesson about how God can handle these big kings. Elijah always had this fear of them. And he's incinerating these people out of that fear. In other words, he's not trusting Yahweh. Which is why when Jesus, when Jesus' disciples want to do the same destructive miracle in Luke 9, he says, can we call on fire from heaven? Incinerate these towns that rejected us. Jesus says, no. In fact, some manuscripts add, and you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. So here this Old Testament saying that Jesus would have said, he's of a different spirit than I am. So here, the apostles have this supernatural authority. It was given to them. They never asked God to heal people. They just heal people. They have this authority. But they can use it for better or for worse. And I think here, um, this is on Peter. I think this was about Peter's will. And it wasn't Peter who killed him directly. It says that Satan has filled your heart. And Satan is the one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So if we're going to think anything killed him, it should be Satan. And I think uh, Peter just used his, his, his apps-like authority to lift protection off these people, which is why Satan could kill them. Uh, whether that was God's will or not, well, I suspect not, but God used it. But, uh, yeah, it never says that God killed him. We just assume that. Excellent question. I appreciate it. Are there other questions? Yeah, great. Uh, okay, let's yeah, let's go over to Cole. Cole's got a question for you, and then we might have Danny do a follow up to his last question. Cole Taylor, Cole, are you there? Cole, are you there? Are you there? Oh, okay, I just got enabled. All right, you're enabled. We enable you in Jesus Collective. There it goes. All right, so I uh, I work enablers primarily in a church. <laughs> So how might this change how we teach the Old Testament, or should we teach it at all? I think you definitely should teach the Old Testament, um, but always from a, a, with a view towards Christ. Um, so, so here's the thing, Cole, is I, I, it's, it's really important uh, for if, if, if this is to get, if you're a pastor of a church, and, you, and I've been dealing with this question a lot, I guess, it's, it's tapered off some in the last couple of months, but I, for a year, was getting a couple of requests a week from pastors saying, I love this, I love this, I love this, what do I do? Uh, how do you teach your congregation? And so what I would suggest is don't roll out this whole thing at once. You first have to lay the groundwork about how you know, Jesus isn't just one revelation among others. Jesus is the revelation that culminates and supersedes all others, and all other revelations are supposed to point to him. I get that groundwork down. And how the cross is the summation of everything Jesus was about. It's only to the degree that people are convinced that God really is like that, that they'll even feel the need to have a different way of viewing these violent portraits of the Old Testament. And depending on the church you're in, unfortunately, in Western culture, most of us have been conditioned 
to 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 uh, uh, give those violent portraits of God the same kind of authority we give Jesus. It's like the Bible is a flat book, and all these pictures of God are equal authoritative, and so you just kind of crush them all together and come up with a sort of montage God that is incoherent and extremely beautiful one day and extremely terrible the next day, and it's just... The New Testament itself tells us not to do that. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then are you looking anywhere else to find the Father? So I lay that groundwork really, really down and then start to explore the interesting ways that, like Paul and others, read the Old Testament in light of that. Uh, you know, the, these folks, they weren't that concerned with the original meaning of things. Uh, they were concerned to find Christ in things. And so anything that resembled Christ, they just, Rachel weeping for children, you know, they just take that out and apply it to, to, to the ministry of Jesus. They were looking for Christ in the Old Testament, and, uh, and that's therefore how we should do it. And when, as you look for Christ in the Old Testament, this is the kind of thing that you might come up with. Uh, how, does all, how, do, how does all Scripture point to Christ? Well, that means you've got to ask the question, how does a genocidal portrait of God point to Christ? And start you know, just weaving people in that way. That would be my recommendation. Uh, you've got to build it from the foundation up. Any tools, Greg, you would recommend? Like I mentioned in the chat, your sermon series, Glimpses of Truth. But I see that what Paul is talking about, he's, he's telling him this is what he wants uh, to, to talk to Timothy about in this letter. And that... I don't know what that was, but um, Greg, is, it was, is, there any, uh, is there any tools... You, Lord? you would uh, recommend? You know, we, we came up with a study guide that, uh, for cross vision. Okay. I know some churches that are beginning to lead the, their uh, congregations through cross-vision, um, through science school classes or whatever, or one guy's doing it right from his pulpit. And, um, uh, but having the, the, them go with a book, that can be very helpful because there's so it really helps to have, especially for people who are inclined to be skeptical of this, uh, you know, you've got to cross every T, dot every I, and show them you know, from Scripture just how Christ is the center of everything and, and, and how it's all supposed to, to point to Christ. Uh, they've got to kind of feel the need uh, for uh, for this to. They have to be convinced that God really is beautiful before they'll be disturbed when God appears ugly. Oh, that's a quote me on that. You've got to be convinced that God is truly, truly beautiful before you can. Um, how do I say it? Before you can explain, or before you can be disturbed by God being uh, ugly, and that's what motivates you now to be, find the cross in the depths of all these ugly portraits. And these ugly portraits really become, uh, li li I call them literary crucifixes that point towards the historical crucifixion. They're, they're, God's being crucified all this while. Great. That's great. Thanks so much, Greg. We, uh, you, you're talking about laying some groundwork, and so Danny has a follow-up question to the groundwork that we laid in the last question that he asked you. So I would love for him to ask it because I think it's very relevant. Excellent. Danny, go ahead and hop in there. <laughs> Uh, thanks again, Greg. We talked about the twisted views of scripture. Um, and um, so do you think that to prevent the twisted view from happening, even within our own teaching of the character of God, that we should be better at emphasizing a community hermeneutic as opposed to the paid professional holy man speaking authoritatively up front? Like I'm, I'm totally aware that I'm, I'm in that included in that. And I find that authority, especially human authority is questioned. Um, comes up over and over, like, how can the church tell me that I can or can't do something? Yeah, yeah. That, okay, so here, here's going to be an interesting discussion henceforth, I think, on the Jesus Collective, uh, and that is, what exactly is meant by a community hermeneutic, and 
how how central is that? Here's the thing. I would argue that from the Anabaptist history, there hasn't usually been a community hermeneutic. They've had pastors like everybody else. Uh, John Howard Yoder kind of retrofitted this into the, the Anabaptist history, in my opinion. Um, I like community hermeneutic, everyone listening to the Spirit and going with stuff, but there's also a role for teachers in the New Testament and for prophets in the New Testament who sometimes speak. If you've got a bunch of a community of people and they're all steeped in the same way of reading the Bible and are, are conditioned by this Christendom flat Bible thing, it's very unlikely that the Holy Spirit's going to be able to get through and t- tell them something that's going to give a different reading. Sometimes we're talking about a paradigm shift here. And, and, and so this isn't something that should ever be forced on anybody, obviously, but you offer it to the community, and now let's discuss this and, and chew on this. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to arise out of the community itself. Uh, there's a role for, I think, look, the Bible is a very ancient book, and, and it takes a lot of learning to get really get into it. That's why we read books on it. That's why we study stuff on it. And those who dedicate their lives to that are going to know more, should know more than other people do, and the other people who don't know should want to learn from them. And it's like that's just a natural thing. I, I don't think that's that doesn't you know it's some kind of a hierarchy that's intrinsically anti Anabaptist. I think that's a kingdom principle, in my own humble opinion. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. I think we have time for one more question. So still on this same uh, thought line, Jordan had a question that uh, that he asked in the. Uh, in the comments, so we're going to just throw it to Jordan, and if you want to ask that question again, Jordan. that would. Hey, everybody! I got to scroll back up to my question to see if it was truly a good question. Okay, <laughs> um, in going back to this uh, revelation to Israel, Yahweh revealing Himself, I ask, um, how do we speak about God's revelation to Israel? A literal reading shows us Yahweh as revealed in that time to those people in that culture. Then, and then this crucicentric reading that we're talking about across Jesus in a reading shows us Yahweh as he truly is. Mm-hmm. So do we speak of the literal reading as revelation in its time and the Jesus cross reading as true revelation? And then are we caught up in potentially our misconceptions of us reading back into that? So how do, you, how do we talk about God's revelation mm-hmm. is my question. Um, well, I'll tell you how I do, and there's not like, just one way of doing this, but, uh, and here I'm going to get influenced by Karl Barth, but I, I think Jesus is the revelation. Mm-hmm. That, that's what it means to say he's the word. Uh, when God speaks, it's Jesus. Um, and so insofar as anyone, and this is Hebrews 1 right here, where the author says, in the past God spoke through various times, various ways, God got glimpses of the truth, mm-hmm. uh, but in these last days God spoken through his son, who is the uh, radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his very essence. And the author is doing this contrast uh, that, that in the past they got glimpses of truth. Uh, but if you're outside and you're getting glimpses of the sun, that means it's, it's a mostly cloudy day. So they had a lot of clouds, a lot of cultural conditioning. God had to work with them where they were at. We have the sun in person and, and, and on a cloudless day. So insofar as they were seeing anything true, they were seeing what we see. It's just that they couldn't see it consistently and clearly. And it got meshed up with all their other stuff. Um, and so that's how I, I, I think the Bible, it points to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it, it is a revelation in a derivative sense, but its purpose is to always be pointing beyond itself to Jesus Christ, and more particularly to the crucified Christ. I think that's uh, the best way to, to, to think about it. Hey, can I end with just one analogy that I found have been, has been very helpful? 
in order to, to really kind of put some meat on or some passion around this idea of this accommodating God, which, by the way, you see throughout the Bible. And, and, and I, I have a lot of examples of that in, in cross-vision. But it, it, it's, a, a couple sent me this story that, uh, as an example or as an analogy for accommodation that I just love. Um, and it's this, they, they, they run a Christian home for foster kids. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most troubled foster kids, the kids that are really have been abused, taken out of homes and stuff like that. They received this one young lady, I'll call her Susan, I don't know, I forget what her real name was, shouldn't use it anyways, but she's 10 years old, she comes to their house, um, taken out of an abusive home, and um, the first morning, she sleeps overnight, but the first morning they go in together, they, they discover that she has smeared her feces on all the walls of this, this, this room. Uh, now, this, this house, they operate with this philosophy, which is so brilliant. It's an incarnational philosophy. And that is that you've got to, they believe you have to get on the inside of the child before you can ever know what is right to even tell the child, to, to give instructions. And so, whereas a lot of homes might get disgusted with this, this is obedient, disobedient, crack down on this, we're not going to stand for this. This group thought if she smears poop on the walls, it must be because she feels the need to. And until we know what the need is, we shouldn't forbid that. So they, they got her to agree to just doing it to one section of a wall, and then they agreed to come in every day and help her clean it up, uh, as long as she feels the need to do that. Um, and, and, and so they, they did that. Now, in time, after a while, they had won her trust. They would get in there on her hands and knees, put on her gloves, and wash off the poop with her. Um, and in time, they find out what, what it was. And what happened was this young girl had been abused by her father from the age of four up to the age of 10. 10 is when they took her out of the home. And, and at one, her father would come in drunk and just sexually abuse her in the middle of the night. And one time when, when she was six or seven, she defecated in the middle of one of these molestations. And it grossed the father out. And he just, with disgust, he ran out of the room. She got a smart idea. And she starts smearing that poop on the walls. And see, what smells like, what smells terrible to us is the smell of freedom and protection for her. Yeah. And, and, and so when they found that out, they... they is, see, they said, as long as you need to do this, we'll, we'll be here with you. Until you feel safe, uh, we'll help you do that. It's a smart thing to do. Now, imagine if, if, if a welfare or child care worker came to the door, knocked at the door, opens it up, and here finds a co-worker, you know, waving poop off a wall with a kid. Um, and letting the kid smear poop on the wall, that would look terrible. That would look like baby child abuse. But if you know the character of the people that are doing it, you see a totally different story. Mm-hmm. The rest of the story, you see something beautiful. And see, that's what God's been doing, I think. God's always been willing to get our shit on himself. And even though it's going to make him look dirty and smelly, God's always been willing to do it. He does it in the most supreme way on the cross. This is him diving into the depths of our cesspool. But the cross simply reveals what God's always been like. It, this isn't an exception to what God's like, which is how Christians usually treat it. This is the quintessential expression of what God's like. So, of course, God's always been doing this, and he's doing this to this day. And that, I think, is one of the most beautiful aspects of the good news that we can give. And are you saying, then, that that, that picture of the girl on the wall, of the parents allowing it, and even seemingly helping her in it, like that's, you're saying that's what's happening in the Old Testament? God, God is stooping down right where they're at. If you need to think of me as a king-centered deity, you know, God didn't want him to have a king. He told him, don't have a king, it's going to go bad. But they wanted a king, so God gives him the king. And right from that moment on, in the biblical narrative, Yahweh acts just like all the ancient Near Eastern gods who were always centered on a king. And now all those dealings are through a king, because the kingship was the center of religion in the ancient Near East. 
So God, if you need me to play that role, well then I'll let you, I'll play that role. And not that God actually plays the role, but he, but he lets them throw that interpretation on him. Um, and until you're willing to let that go, and we find God doing this all over the place. You know, in the ancient Near East, everyone saw sacrifices as feeding gods. You know, and so they, they, they put on the sacrifices and they say the gods would smell the odor of the sacrifices and come down and devour the sacrifice. Well, you can see in the Old Testament how God initially could wean the people off of the idea that he needs to be fed, although there's two verses that refer to sacrifices as the food of Yahweh. So there's a little residue there. But, but they weren't ready to let go of this idea that he enjoys the smell. And so you find dozens and dozens and dozens of references to the, the sweet-smelling odor going up to God and God being pleased with it. Later on, a thousand years later, God is, or a couple hundred years later, God's finally able to say, you guys, I don't like sacrifices at all. It was never my idea. They revolt me. Stop it. What I want is justice and mercy. So there's a gradually unfolding of the revelation here, and more clouds are being moved out of the way, and they're seeing a little bit more of the sun uh, as, as, as time goes on. Uh, that's great. Where, where do you tell the story of the, that foster daughter? Um, <clears throat> for, the, for the preacher teachers among us, that, that story is pure gold. I believe it's in, I believe it's in uh, Cross Vision. It may also be in Crucifixion and Warrior God. Uh, but it's certainly in cross vision. Okay. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. Yeah. Uh, I, I solicited, when I was finishing up Crucifixion of the Word of God, I was trying to find good analogies. And so I, I was on Twitter and other places saying, hey, send me analogies. You know, I got a whole bunch from Harry Potter and stuff, but they took a whole lot to unpack. But this one, as soon as I got it, it's like, booyah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's perfect. So you see the ugliness, all the ugliness of the Bible is just the ugliness of human shit, and yeah, God's wearing it, but that's what, that's what, that's, that's what reveals God to us. So we can step down into that. That's true. That's great. Thanks, Greg. It's 2.15, so we have to wrap up the Q&A section. But there's uh, lots of people have written resources and shared a bunch of stuff in the comments, so make sure, everybody, that you get in there and, and find some of the ones that you feel might be a good source for you as well. And uh, so thank you, Greg. I'm glad that we got at least one swear word in to our <laughs> I heard a couple. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just know that, 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 like that, that, that we're edgy. You know? We're edgy. We swear. Yeah. We're shit is shit. You got to say it's shit. You know? <laughs> but thank you so much for answering those. So, um, hey, it's an honor to be here. I love, <laughs> I love this. I love what we're doing. Look we're so more. thankful that you're so honest. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on. Take yeah. care, guys. Yeah, now I gotta figure out how to get out of here. Oh boy, someone kicked Greg out. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna toss it over to John, and he's gonna take over for the next section, I believe. Okay. Hey everybody. Um, so now this is the part of the collective where we collect together, and uh, Zulima's gonna send us into breakout rooms where we'll have about ten minutes to connect with other people. She's gonna put. Uh, a couple questions in the chat. So really what we're just trying to do is let people know where you're coming from. Uh, last time we did this, somebody made a connection with another church and uh, they've been continuing the conversation and they circle back to say, thanks for letting us connect because we, we made a touch point. We, we don't know anybody where we are who thinks like this and is asking these questions. And so we were able to make a connection that otherwise wouldn't have happened. That's the spirit and the heart of what we're trying to do here. Just thanks to everybody for such great engagement today. We can't thank Greg, or at least he can't hear us, but it's great to have him bring the, the Jesus fire, but also helping us keep it casual and friendly. And as was previously mentioned, we blew through our expletive quota on the first call. So that's <laughs> encouragement. 
Um, so look, these online sessions aren't all that we're aiming to do through Jesus Collective, but today I think really was a great illustration of something that we do want to do that's very important to us. And aside from the content itself and the questions, what I see happening here is us trying to create a safe space for conversation. It's centered around Jesus, non-negotiably, but welcomes questions. It inspires conversation. It enables discussion, even if everyone, quite frankly, doesn't fully agree and is still working things out and comes from a different background and context. That's actually something we're not afraid of, but rather we want to lean into. And you're helping us do that. Um, you know, as John mentioned, we're in a pilot. And... We're unapologetically taking a test and learn approach, which we're going to make some mistakes. We're going to listen and learn and discern the spirits leading along the way. And we're really interested in knowing right now, is this vision and the things that we sense God calling us to do resonating with people? Um, so you're helping us learn by taking part in experimental things like this session today. And we've been just so encouraged that we're drawing in people who might identify as Anabaptists, others who don't even know what that label means, but really resonate with what we're talking about when you strip it away and put Jesus at the center and use that as our common denominator. So we love that this has turned into a diverse community that's building and the momentum that's gaining by people getting closer to it. Uh, and just want to thank you for helping to make that possible and really, even in these early days, start, start making this feel like a collective. There's a reason we chose that name. Um, so we are in a pilot, though. We're testing and learning, and we want your feedback. So as John mentioned today, we have some glitches to work out. We have some things to improve. Um, we'd, like to, we'd like to keep experimenting and iterating and getting better along the way. So you can reach out to us at connect.jesuscollective.com. Send us your feedback. Make sure we're hearing from you both about the content as well as the, just the way we're doing this, the format that we're using. All those different variables are open for feedback. Um, there's someone else I'd like to introduce real quick. Her name's Zalima. You've heard her reference. Zalima, are you on the screen anywhere? Have you shown yourself? Ah, don't hide. So wave to Zalima. Zalima is our project manager and just someone who's working incredibly hard behind the scenes to help make these things happen. It's great to put real faces to those names. Zalima, we love you and we're appreciative of all the work you do. Um, just want to make sure people knew that you were behind the scenes working hard. And just a couple of things to keep in mind. Um, we've got some regional vision casting events coming up over the course of the next many months. There's one in Toronto in October, as well as in Vancouver in October. And we're looking to plan a few in the U.S. into the new year in 2020. We'd love to just invite people who want to hear more about Jesus Collective, who would like to understand the vision better, but also speak into it and give input to consider coming out to one of those. So spread the word um, and let us know if you think hosting one in your area or doing one online for a pocket of people that you know might be something you're interested in because we'd be very open to considering that. Uh, you can drop us a line. You can find us on JesusCollective.com. You can join our mailing list there. And if you do social media, make sure you track with us it's on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, we're not prolific yet at this stage because we're just testing and learning and we're still in pilot mode, but we're definitely present there and would love to hear from you. So those are a few things that are up and, and running in the near future. I mentioned at the top of the call some of the things we're going to be trying to test over the next couple months, like an online platform to start building community. And John also mentioned that in the fall or winter, we're going to be piloting our first version of some online leadership formation intensive collectives that span over a course of several weeks really to provide an opportunity for people to dig in and experience more intensive formation as leaders. So there's lots coming up. Be patient with us. We're just testing and learning, but we've been really encouraged by the momentum that God's putting behind this thing so far. So really appreciate everyone's time today. Thanks for coming out. Hey, if you want to uh, take a step today with Jesus Collective, uh, you can go to the website and sign up 
to be a part of the the pilot application, and we are starting to uh, gather up information that we're going to cast out to that group who applied in the kind of the pilot application about our uh, fall. We're calling them online learning collectives. It's a six-week, really uh, kind of sprint-based learning where we're going to do a deep dive <clears throat> for six short weeks on a topic. Uh, our first topic is probably going to be around how do we navigate some of the secular challenges in a post-Christian culture with this message. Uh, so we're excited to pilot that, and we'll communicate with you in that pilot application if you're interested in, in knowing more. And uh, Zulima just put that link in the chat. All right, everybody. Thanks. Uh, it was great to be together. And uh, we'll see you hopefully in September uh, on the 18th when we hang out with Danielle Strickland. Thanks for listening. And hey, don't forget to check in at JesusCollective.com where you can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find info about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff. Or you can find us on social media too. And listening is such an important part of our journey, especially in these early days. So you can feel free to reach out to us with ideas and feedback and suggestions. You can always connect with us by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you.